The United States became the world's largest economy in the early 20th century, and through massive industrial growth and technical innovation, it has held onto that lead for over 100 years. The world's superpowers that came before it were most notably colonial empires, with France, Britain and the Netherlands all extracting a vast majority of their wealth from foreign colonies that they used to mine natural resources or grow tea and spices to bring back home. Incidentally, the United States was once one of these colonies, but it had a bit of a rebellious streak and claimed independence to go on and become a majorly powerful nation in its own right. The nation was born with the memories of empire and what it meant to be a colony, so it ultimately walked a different path to prosperity. In this video, part 2 of a series on the economy of the United States, we will look at America's take on its own global empire. One thing that I have to get out of the way almost immediately is that the United States did have foreign colonies, most notably the Philippines, which even today carries a lot of the history from this brief occupation. Curiously enough, one of which was its Independence Day, with the Philippines officially claiming independence from the USA on the 4th of July, only this time in 1946. But for the most part, these colonies were military bases used to expand their growing military influence around the world. And sure, they extracted some resources from these nations, but it was incredibly minimal, and far from the primary wealth generator like it was for typical colonial powers like, say, the British Empire. The other big point of note is that the United States didn't necessarily shun colonial empire because it had some virtuous point to prove. Sure, maybe being a colony itself may have influenced its decision to not target aggressive colonial expansion, but this was a nation that just got around to abolishing slavery 50 years earlier. It did not really have much of a moral high ground. No, this was more of a pragmatic decision. The United States was a vast landmass blessed with natural resources and arable land. Why would it ship stuff from halfway across the world if it had everything it needed at home? England, for contrast, was pretty much a windswept, jagged rock in the Atlantic Ocean that doesn't have quite the same cornucopia of natural wealth. So this explains why America decided to focus internally and adopt the policy of isolationism, which really started with George Washington. In his farewell address, he put heavy emphasis on how he thought the newly founded United States should just keep to itself and not try and make any friends or enemies. The great rule of conduct for us in regards to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations, to have with them as little political connection as possible. Europe has a set of primary interests, which to us have none or little remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties and ordinary vicinities of her politics, or the ordinary combinations and collusions of her friendship and enmities. Which is just a really complicated and hard-to-read way of saying, yeah, Europe, we're going to look after ourselves from here on out. This, for the most part, served itself well throughout the United States' growth phase, and while it didn't always go exactly to plan and it did get itself into a lot of wars, it did mean that the country could grow relatively unaffected by the rumblings of Europe. Isolation was also really important for another reason. When you are not dependent on ripping resources out of some foreign colony you own, you kind of have to produce the wealth yourself. Now, nations typically do this in three main ways growing resources in the form of farming, which was at this time still the primary determinant of wealth for every nation on earth. 
They can extract resources by mining up valuable metals, minerals, or fossil fuels, or they can add value to existing resources. If a nation before the Industrial Revolution wanted to increase its wealth and power, it would just pray for good crop yields. More crop yields meant more people can be fed, which means a bigger population, which means more people to toil the fields, which means more crops can be produced. Sprinkle a little bit of construction and mining industry, and that's pretty much your economy. In the age of colonialism, if a country wanted to increase its wealth and influence, it could go and rule over a new colony. More colonies meant more resources could be grown and extracted, which meant more wealth to build ships and armies, which meant more colonies. Now, this is obviously incredibly oversimplified, but it shows how having wealth builds wealth, which was as true 400 years ago as it is today. But for America, with its isolationist policy, this wasn't really an option. Sure, it could take full advantage of its plentiful arable lands and natural resources, but if it wanted to increase its wealth beyond that, it had to add value itself through industry. Digging iron ore out of the ground is pretty useless. For the most part, iron ore is just red dust. The reason countries like, let's say, Australia make so much money off this is because they sell it to countries like China that will refine this dust into steel, which is incredibly useful for all manner of applications. In both instances, these countries would have made money. Australia gets paid for its red dust and China gets paid for steel, but only one of these nations has really produced wealth. By adding value to an item like turning red dust into steel or steel into an automobile, a country or business or even an individual has generated wealth where once there wasn't any. In the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, wealth creation had become their primary industry. The country could not rely on harvesting resources from an endless portfolio of occupied colonies. So instead, it made the most of what it had. And oh boy, did it make. America refined oil to fuel cars that it produced en masse that drove on a road network that was world leading at the time. It financed the construction of factories that produced everything from light bulbs to battleships. It was not only generating wealth by turning raw materials into components and then into usable products, but it was also generating wealth by generating things that generated wealth. You know those roads and factories? Well, those took people to build and maintain, which creates wealth in its own right, but more importantly, they accommodated more business taking place. Having to fend for itself for so long meant that the USA became really good at producing things, which was a fantastic skill to have in the age of industry, and this quickly propelled the nation to become the most powerful on earth. The early 20th century was of course defined by World War I and World War II. The United States for the most part tried really, really hard to stay out of both of these conflicts. For starters, they weren't really affecting them, and also, they still had that policy of isolation. Unfortunate events dictated that in both instances, and despite their best attempts, the United States was still dragged into these conflicts. After the end of the Second World War, the United States had also won a war of sheer industrial dominance. It was producing more ships and tanks and planes and bullets and bombs than every other nation on Earth combined. After the war, there was far less need for this type of output, but the factories and railways and shipyards that accommodated for this output were still in place and were very easily retooled for the production of consumer goods. This influx of newly found productive capacity conveniently coincided with the almost total destruction of the productive capacity of Europe and Japan, and the formation of the United Nations and worldwide trade agreements. 
The age of isolation was over, and the United States was in the driver's seat to be the workshop of the world. Today, globalization is something that we take for granted. Countries do what they do well, and we trade products back and forth all over the world. The advent of things like shipping containers and the formation of trade deals amongst nations during the Cold War accelerated the process of countries like the United States going from producing everything that they needed for themselves to what you see today, where they produce what they do well and then export it. And today, what the United States exports is not something as simple as cars or planes or computers. Sure, they export a lot of those things too, but the primary wealth generator for the United States is its companies. If you look at my audience, about 20% of my month-to-month -month viewers come from the United States, which is cool, and thanks for watching, guys. For everyone else, you are watching me now on YouTube, an American website that is owned by Google, a major American tech company, on a computer that is most likely powered by an Intel or AMD CPU. We watch American films and buy American phones and shop on American websites for stuff most likely produced in some part by an American company. What is more is that while these are all very advanced products that have many, many layers of value added to them, the United States does not even need to add the value themselves anymore. It is inevitable at some point today someone in Germany purchased an iPhone. This was a German using their salary to buy a phone that was shipped to Germany on an Italian container ship from China, where it was produced using components manufactured in India from raw materials like lithium harvested from Brazil. This entire process has many, many steps of value adding, but at no point did any of it run through the United States. But guess what? When Apple turns a profit, it is an American company that will reap those rewards, for it's primarily American shareholders. America got so good at value adding an industry that it was able to set up its productive companies in almost every major market around the world. The United States doesn't need to do something as old-fashioned as holding colonies for itself to extract resources from. It has other nations doing all of that for them. And while this sounds bad, it really isn't. Through globalization, trade, and technical development, the United States has led the world economy into an age of productive abundance. All of the countries we have mentioned in the oversimplified iPhone example aren't subjugated by the United States. For the most part, this kind of industry has brought with it massive improvements to quality of life for the residents of these nations, who have in turn founded their own companies that conduct business all over the world today. And I know this is an overly rosy picture of our increasingly globalized world that does have its drawbacks, but if we are looking at the system purely from the point of view of producing the most wealth for the most amount of people, it really can't be seen as anything other than a great success. America and the modern global economic machine have almost endless productive capacity. 200 years ago, this was a different story. The wealth of nations was determined by how much they could produce. Today, the limitation almost doesn't exist, and the wealth of nations is instead decided by how much its citizens can afford to consume. In the meantime, please let me know if you are enjoying this series on the economy of the United States by liking and commenting. Also, if you are not already, please consider subscribing to the channel. It really helps out. Otherwise, I will be hosting a Q&A session on the Discord server linked in the video description and live streaming this session on the Economics Explained second channel. So if you have any questions or just want to hang out, come and join us over there. Thanks guys. Bye.